great job by our musicians this morning. Brothers and sisters, we stand forgiven at the cross. Amen. That's the message this morning. Simple message. Nothing clever. Nothing new. Nothing profound. But something amazing. Amazing. We stand forgiven at the cross. Now we are in our, our Bibles in John 19. We are missing Adam missing Adam and Donnie this morning. Adam will be back with us tonight, and Donnie is, is in Cuba. I do ask that you continue to pray for uh, our Cuba mission team. And um, at the close of the, the service today, uh, hopefully we'll have a time of, of praying for them. Um, be sure to pray for them as they continue to minister. God's doing some amazing things. Um, thank you, Jared, for a great welcome this morning and drawing our attention to the Lord. Let's give our sparks a hand, another hand. <coughs> you know, at that age, they need such encouragement. I just want to tell you, Sparkies, thank you. Thank you for preaching Jesus to us. Amen? Adults, thank you for that witness. You did a great thing this morning, and we're very proud of you. Okay? John chapter 19. We turn our attention this morning to the events of Jesus and his death and burial as we're traveling through the book of John. I ask you to, to come with me to the foot of the cross to this morning. Although there may be distractions, though you may, you may tail off, I do the same thing. But I just ask for, for your attention, not for my sake, but for the sake of this beautiful gospel and this word that you would put yourself in that moment, in that time, and think with your mind's eye on the scriptures and their testimony to us about his crucifixion and death. As Jared read the, um, the passage this morning, and what it really is, it's really three separate uh, little stories of Jesus' death and burial. And just to help you remember what's going on here, that there are three points, and, uh, and there is a P word associated with each one, just, just to help you. Uh, it helps me, and so I can't get away from it uh, a lot of times, but uh, this will help us this morning. It fits kind of naturally with, with our passage. The first thing I want us to know as we, as we look at these first few verses, verses 28 through uh, 31, we see a poured out Savior. We see Jesus pour himself out. He's spent. Verse 28, and after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished. Well, what is everything? There was more to be done. There was, there's more of the Bible. There, there's more uh, in the sense of his resurrection, of his ascension, of 40 days of discipling his, his uh, disciples. After he resurrects, he spends more time with them before Pentecost. But here he's talking about his obedient life and his fulfilled mission to die a substitute death for the elect, for those that God is going to save. All that was left for him to do was to die. Earlier, he said in John 17, I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus knew his mission. His mission was set. He knew every objective. Sometimes we forget what we're supposed to do. But here's Jesus. He's hanging, dying, bleeding, suffering on a cross, 
and he knows every objective he was to accomplish. And this shows his divine nature. It shows that he is God the Son. He knows what he is supposed to accomplish. And there's no more work to do. There's nothing left to do but die. You know, in a very real sense, this this first beginning of our message this morning, this should be our Christian perspective in our own lives. Everything was accomplished. That's Christianity, brothers and sisters. Everything was accomplished with regards to our salvation. And moving on, we see, let's continue to read, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. A vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, so he fixed a sponge, uh, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. This shows us Jesus' humanity. The last time I spoke uh, before you a few weeks ago, uh, from John 17 in the high priestly prayer, we, we emphasized the deity of Jesus, how He is God the Son. He is co-equal with the Father. He is eternal. He is equal in essence and divinity. He is God. But here, we also see that He's truly man, that He truly suffered. God has no needs. There's no deficiency in Him. There's nothing you need to give Him. There's nothing that He lacks. But we as humans, we have plenty of needs, don't we? Jesus was hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus was sleepy. Jesus was capable of exhaustion. His flesh experienced his weakness. And as we examine the context of what's happened to him here, we have to understand he's not just saying, I was a little bit thirsty. Oh, I'm thirsty, man. He wasn't just saying, I was somewhat thirsty. He's saying, I'm absolutely thirsty. This is a a severe understatement. He's saying, I thirst. He is poured out. He's at the depths of thirst. Now think about this. A couple of things. One, he could have had a drink earlier. This is not the first drink he was offered. He refused the first drink. Matthew 27, verses 33 through 34 tells us, When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the skull place, they gave him vinegar with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. The reason is that drink, it was a normal practice. This drink was mixed with gall. Gall um, was a mixture of myrrh and perhaps some some other things. And it it had a pain-dulling effect. And it was typically offered to those being crucified to kind of dull their senses and dull some of the pain. And Jesus refused that. He took all of the suffering. He desired to feel it all. He desired to be a perfect sacrifice. There's no courtroom that he could enter where someone could accuse him of not taking everything that this death had to give him. He had to have all of his senses about him. He had to have a clear mind as he suffered. As he, This is one of the reasons the seven sayings on the cross are so profound because he said them as he was dying. We looked last week at how he gave his mother away. He made sure as he's dying that he's taking care of his mother. He would not drink the drink of the soldiers, the first drink. Rather, as Peter told him, put your sword, as he told Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That was in the previous chapter. Now, this final drink had no gall. It was merely a form of sour wine. It was sour. Didn't taste good. Would have likely brought no relief to him. And he, he knew that. He would have known that. 
But Jesus took this, and he drank this to fulfill Scripture, it says. He had poured himself out. He poured himself out mentally, physically, spiritually. He refused to drink the first drink of health, but he took the last drink of bitterness. It's almost as if he's taking the insult to injury. He's taking this bitter wine. This same Son of God is the one who, another thing to think about, he calms raging seas, he walks on water, he multiplied fish and loaves, he turned water into wine. He could have relied on his divine abilities to quench that thirst, to get something to drink. He could have called a legion of angels at any moment to stop this madness, to stop this pain and suffering. It was at his command and in his authority to do, and yet he desired to fulfill the will of the Father. What's the most tired and exhausted that you've ever been? Fatigue, sleeplessness, being overworked. Some of you moms with kids, I know you can get, you can get exhausted and tired. And some of you dads, can the same thing. Some of you moms and dads can go to work and your work is just exhausting. You come home and you're just depleted and there's nothing left. Some of you have dealt with sickness and cancer and you've had to endure chemo and what that does to your body and how it wrecks you. And you, you, have, you have been poured out in a sense. We as Americans, we, we speak often of how tired we are. And there's a, there, there's a truth to that. I don't want to make light of that. But we in no way have ever been poured out as Jesus Christ was poured out. We've never been exhausted and fatigued and hurting and in pain as Jesus was. Not only did he endure one of the worst forms of, of human death and torture and, and, and execution that you can endure, but he also endured, as Adam spoke of last week, the wrath of God. He took sin upon himself. Even Peter, his disciple, who we would look at as a pillar of the faith, this man who was close to Jesus, it is rumored that when he died, he was crucified upside down because he did not want to. They were going to crucify him, but he said, please don't crucify me in the way of my Savior. I'm not worthy of that kind of death. He looked at the Savior and knew what he had given up, what he had poured out. As Adam mentioned last week, the suffering was not merely the physical nature. Jesus took sin upon himself. Those who were by nature his enemies, he made them friends. He stood in as a substitute and took the wrath of God for us. As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. As Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by his wounds, as Isaiah says, by his wounds we healed have you repented of your sin today and do you believe in his ability through his suffering to give you new life that is the gospel that is the message everything was accomplished he poured himself out there's nothing you could pour out there's nothing you could do there's no amount of church you can attend there's no amount of prayers you can have there's no amount of theology that you can know and just file away in your memory bank you have to repent of your sin. You have to humble yourself and let God do a work in you. And you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sin. 
to forgive you, not just mankind, but do you know he has forgiven you by his blood spilt for you on the cross? Continuing on in verse 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he yielded up his spirit and went home for a while. It is finished is really one word. Tetelestai is the word. It's the same word he used early when he spoke about knowing that everything was accomplished. He knew this, but now he's letting it be known. This isn't like a last gasp of somebody that's that's just finally glad to be done with the suffering. This is a victory cry. This is a war cry. It is finished. And it had been. What a unique and unparalleled victory cry that it is. When we accomplish something, we like to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We can go to a game and cheer and cheer and be happy if we're LSU, as Jared mentioned. And we can be so excited about what we've done. Or actually, it's not even about what we've done. We talk about our victories. Really, those boys on the field that did it. But we're part, fans. We get a promotion at work. And we build something at the house. And we get the kids to sleep on time. And those are great accomplishments. But we, we should be in awe of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. It's Thanksgiving week nothing that we should be more thankful for than Jesus pouring out his life for us. There's no greater accomplishment. There's no greater victory. At the root of everything that we do and everything that we are, we ought to be thankful for what Christ has done and for who he is. Secondly, we not only see our Savior pour out his life, we see prophecy, second key word, fulfilled in him. John, during Jesus' crucifixion, he specifically mentions four ancient prophecies of Scripture that Jesus fulfills here in his death. This supports John's purpose for this book that we've mentioned many times. John 20, 30, and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, the Bible contains somewhere around, it's, it's counted 7,000 different prophecies, foretellings of the future. There's many different usages of, of prophecy in the Bible. A, a prophet was just one that, that, that told forth the words of God, but sometimes they foretold the future. And there are around 7,000 that's been estimated, 300 of which are fulfilled in the life of Jesus alone. The first crucifixion prophecy that John highlighted we saw last week as the soldiers divided his garments and cast lots for them. That fulfills Psalm 22:18 as he hung on the cross. The second is Jesus' great thirst, which we just saw, fulfilling Psalm 22:15 and possibly Psalm 69:21. The third and the fourth we turn our attention to now in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They were worried. They were worried. They were worried about their rule-keeping, violating their rules. We can get like this sometimes. And so they needed to, they needed to kill, they were in a bind, they needed to kill Jesus 
but they need to do it quickly. They need to get him off the cross. The Jews typically didn't leave anybody on the cross. And so we're, we're unclear here as to whether they were really trying to honor the Sabbath. They were trying to honor God in a way, in a twisted way, by having the those that were killed off the crosses so they could celebrate the day in, a, in holiness or cleanness. Or, and this is what I think, they were worried about their reputation. Thousands of Jewish travelers had come into town, and they're going to look at these Pharisees as hypocritical for killing this man and then leaving him up on the Sabbath. But whatever reason it was, they had something twisted in their minds. We continue to read, Therefore they requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. Typically a crucifixion would last two or three days. It was a brutal form of torturous execution. There were no vital organs that were hurt. And so you didn't, you didn't have anything to help you die quickly. Adam mentioned this last week, but the way you died of crucifixion was typically suffocation. You, you had to push your body up. You had nails in your hands, nails in your feet, but you had to push your body up to breathe. And you had to keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that. So this could be a long, excruciating, that's where we get that word from, process where eventually somebody just tired out and they could not physically get the air anymore and they died of suffocation. The Pharisees couldn't wait that long and so they asked Pilate if they could break his legs. Their self-righteousness led to a disposable view of humanity. They had a disposable view of human life. They had a disrespectful view of human life unless it agreed with them. They had a dis disrespectful view of Jesus, a blindness to the heart of God's law. Contrast this with James, who said pure religion is to care for the orphans and widows in their distress. Contrast this with the words of Jesus himself at the final judgment where he says that the righteous will, will, uh, he will separate the goats from the sheep. And he will say to the righteous, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. The heart of the righteous, the heart of the one that loves God, has evidence of such. There's not perfection. There's not sinlessness. We can fake sinlessness just like the Pharisees did. We can go around and we can, we can, we can keep rules to where everybody can, can see. And we can keep a lot of sinfulness in our hearts and we can we can have a behavior that society will accept and we can look at ourselves and say wow look at what we're doing look how how good we are compared to everyone else but jesus points out in that final day the change that i bring once saved always saved is true but what does it mean to be saved what it means to be saved is that you are a new creation in christ it means that though you will still struggle with sin until you reach heaven, you will also be growing in sanctification and the fruit of the Spirit and love for Christ and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will love your enemy as yourself and you will be like Jesus. You will be a Christian in actuality, not in name. 
Pharisees didn't have that. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and and of the other one who had been crucified with him. This is an interesting point. This is the thief who had hours ago ridiculed Jesus to his face. And as he sees what Jesus is doing on the cross, he believes and he says to him, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Here we see a clear example of how Christians can be saved and still go through suffering. The thief was promised salvation from Jesus in his presence, but he still suffered his legs being broken and a terrible death. But it doesn't mean that God isn't good. God can let his children suffer. And that doesn't mean that he's not good. Because look at this. We also see here an amazing fulfillment of Jesus' own words to this thief that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Today you will be with me in paradise. Remember what I said about a crucifixion. It could last for days. But Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not in a couple of days. But today, brother, you will be with me. A man that had once ridiculed Jesus to his face was shown grace and went home to be with him that very day. Let's continue on reading in verse 33 if if you're following along. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. It actually amazed Pilate when they went to him and told him that Jesus was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. He did this to verify that Jesus was dead, and it was a lot easier than breaking legs. They, they usually broke the legs probably with a, either a mallet or an iron bar. They had to break these legs so that they couldn't push up. And so spearing him to see whether he was alive was a lot easier and at once uh, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out this is either fluid on the lungs or the the pericardium Uh, there's a lot of different theories on this but blood and water came out what an amazing picture of his sacrifice he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth i think this is code for john he's trying to be anonymous Throughout this book, trying not to bring attention to himself, he's saying, I was there. I know I'm telling the truth. The author of this book is telling the truth because he was there. He saw it. Verse 36, for these things happen so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. Two prophecies fulfilled. His bones will not be broken. This fulfills Psalm 34, 20, which was written a thousand years before Christ was born it also points back to the tradition from from the the passover in egypt when they began the passover celebration they had to go get a lamb that was that was a year old and that lamb could have no broken bones it was part of the purity of that lamb it was it was symbolic of that lamb's health he couldn't have defects it had to be pure and none of the bones would be broken and jesus is that lamb this points us yet again to the fact that this lamb was a perfect sacrifice His side was pierced, fulfilling Zechariah 12.10. This was written 500 years before he was born. 
Brothers and sisters, we can study these events and these prophecies for our entire lifetimes. There's so many beautiful things we can get out of this. It's fascinating. It's interesting. But it's not merely fascinating. It's not merely interesting. It's not merely something that we should just do as a hobby. These things are convincing. These things are faith building. They give us confidence in God's perfect plan. That even in the midst of the suffering and the wickedness and the evil, God is in control. He has power to carry these things out. Though wicked men and satanic forces meant them for evil, God meant them for good. Just like Joseph and the slavery, his brothers sold him into slavery. They did something that was wicked, and God said, Though they meant it for evil, I meant it for good. God will fulfill his prophecies. There was no plan B. There was no risk of failure. There was no imagined type of human free will that could have altered this ending. This was going to happen. The Jews couldn't decide anything different. The Romans couldn't decide anything different. This was God's plan to put his son on a cross. It was the plan for, from day one to save you. All of this to save you and to save me. What an amazing thing. You and I can always bank on God being God. God always keeping his word. Prophecies are fulfilled because God is in control. God's promises are fulfilled because God is in control. And what a comfort to our lives when we're out of control. Right? When life is not going as planned. When the trajectory is not what we thought it would be. When home life's not what we thought it would be. When parenting is not what you thought it would be. When the job is not what you wish it would be. When your health is not what you wish it would be. When the world is not what you wish it would be. God is in control. And that should be a great comfort to us. And we should give thanks for that. Jesus yet again proves he is the truth. He is the only one who can save us. And everything points to him. There is no other way. There is no other Savior. There is no other person that prophecies confirm like Jesus. And he can save anyone, which brings us to our, our third section. We see a poured out Savior. We see prophecies fulfilled. And we see Pharisees changed by him. We sang in our first song, every Pharisee, every Pharisee can be saved. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea was a village about 20 miles northwest in the hill country of East Ephraim. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission so that he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been placed. So because of the Jewish preparation day, since the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus there. Jesus' burial actually fulfills a fifth prophecy, though John doesn't mention that it does. Isaiah 53, 9, 
talked about him being buried with the rich. This could have been Joseph's tomb. Um, usually a wealthy person had this kind of, of tomb. Joseph, we are told elsewhere, was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, made up of 70 men and a high priest. This is the council that condemned Jesus with the, the phony trial. But Joseph, it is said, did not agree with their decision or plan. And he probably wasn't there. Now, we're not told specifically whether Joseph is a Pharisee like Nicodemus, but that's probably the most likely choice. Even with his influence and reputation, Joseph had been fearful of his fellow Jews and those who were in power. But now we see him break loose of his fear. He is in secret no more. Luke 23, 50. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just man. This man had not consented to the counsel of their action. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Matthew, uh, Mark 15. And now when evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, who also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate, and I love this, craved the body of Jesus, is the language that the King James used. He craved it. He begged, Pilate, let me bury this man. Let me bury this man. Not only did he disagree with the Sanhedrin, the council, and the Pharisees that condemned Jesus, he loved Jesus, and he sought to honor Jesus. It's so interesting to me that, that a Joseph of Nazareth, I don't know what this means, but I just thought it was interesting, a Joseph of Nazareth loved Jesus and cared for him at his birth. And a Joseph, another Joseph of Arimathea, loved Jesus and cared for him at his death. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, had also originally come to Jesus in the cover of night in John 3. He was confused by Jesus' action. He, in speaking with Jesus, he got confused by Jesus' words. But the value of his gift and what he brings shows his great love for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, how ironic is this? Think about this. How ironic and yet perfect that two, that the peoples who sought to kill Jesus hated him most, and condemned him. That two of their very own people are the ones who buried him with their own hands. We assume that both of these men were wealthy. Joseph had perhaps the tomb. Nicodemus had these materials. But notice what it doesn't say. Notice what the Bible doesn't do. It's not class warfare. And it doesn't look down on them because they are wealthy. Jesus doesn't malign, and the Bible doesn't malign, and John doesn't malign any so-called privilege that they might have or blessing that they might have. It simply warns them that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's a temptation to love money and love possessions and love materials more than Jesus. You can get distracted, you can get blinded, and it's a serious temptation for us in America. Sometimes it, it really dulls our love for Christ. And we need him to awaken us. But there, there's, there's no ridicule of these men. In fact, the Bible goes on to say elsewhere, to whom much is given, much is required. Where were the other disciples? 
They were hiding. They were hiding. And perhaps for good reasons. But God appointed these men for this amazing task to honor the Son of God by burying Him. And you know what? They gave of themselves. They risked their reputations. They were out in the open now as followers of Jesus. You can't hide this. You can't be secret about this. They went to, they went to the, the main guy, Pilate, and they asked for his, uh, Joseph asked for his body, and Nicodemus brings the materials, and they bury him. They gave of their possessions. They didn't care about their standing anymore. They weren't going along to get, get along. Where are you in that? It's a question I ask myself. How willing am I to step out for Christ, given all the, all the, the places that you might hold, the reputations you might have, the patterns of friendships and what you get together and talk about with your friends and family, how your Thanksgiving typically goes, at what level are you? Where are you with desiring to step out like Joseph and like Nicodemus? Are you willing to step out and risk everything to honor your Lord? What an amazing Thanksgiving that would be if we showed him more honor. Maybe, maybe you can pray about God allowing you to honor Christ more at Thanksgiving this year. And not just then, but all the time. Brothers and sisters, God can change anyone. There's no one that's too far gone. There's no one that's sinned too much. If he can take two self-righteous Pharisees and save them, he can save anybody. The Roman soldier, the centurion, said, Behold, this was the Son of God. The thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Many of his disciples were fishermen. And of course, these two Pharisees, you see Jesus pulling from everywhere. It doesn't matter who you are. If you'll repent of your sin and believe in Christ, you can be saved. Jesus doesn't just love people from afar. He sends his spirit into their hearts and lives and minds to give them new spiritual life and to change them from the inside out. We have people uh, in Cuba right now that are serving the Lord and they're praying that people will come to know Christ. And as we um, close, uh, I just ask you to pray for them. If you want to come down and you want to you want to pray for them during this invitation, you can. Um, pray for those that they have ministered to already. And this morning we see we see a savior die, but it's a death that gives life. Do you have his life? Maybe you're sitting in the room this morning and you know what you've been to church a lot, or maybe you're a young person. You wonder, am I am I am I too young to let Jesus save me. No, you're not. Or maybe you're maybe you're old, and you know what? It would you feel like an embarrassment. Well, I don't I don't don't know for sure, and I don't I don't want to. Everybody's thought I'm a Christian for so long. I don't want to. I don't want to change that. People might think I'm a hypocrite. Listen, everybody in this room would rejoice if they knew you really knew Jesus. Right? Amen. We want to see you saved. We want to know that you know Christ. 
and that you have his eternal life. So if you don't know Christ this morning, come, pray, pray where you are, and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand together. As our musicians come, I do want to ask you, if you don't mind, if some of you would come down this morning and just offer a prayer publicly for our Cuba mission team. God is doing some amazing things there, and let's pray that God would continue to bless them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of your son who poured out his life, and he deserves praise for that. You fulfilled prophecy in him proving your power and control over all things. And God, you, you showed us that you can save anybody. You saved two Pharisees. You can save me. You can save anybody. Anybody's sin can be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for this great salvation. Thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.